let's try to make this where we're actually solving a business problem and we're solving a human problem at the same time. That's the way we're actually going to get to where these are aligned objectives. And I think that's how we're going to keep from scaling unexpected consequences, unintended consequences into our world. For Monday, November 4th, 2019, this is episode 56, Kate O'Neill, Why Technology Must Be Human-Centric. Kate and I discussed several topics relating to designing for technology that is both smart for business and good for people. We covered voice and AI plus deep fakes and data mining by Facebook and others, and whether companies should regulate themselves, can regulate themselves, or if government really needs to step in. Kate is known around the world as the tech humanist, and she has a great approach to keeping all this technology human and what that will take. Welcome to the Beetle Moment Marketing Podcast, a short weekly exploration of marketing, voice technology, and business. I'm Emily Binder. I answer to no one, and I make this for you. Let's get on with the show. I'm Emily Binder. Welcome back to the Beetle Moment Marketing Podcast. My super special guest today is Kate O'Neill. As founder and chief tech humanist of KO Insights, a strategic advisory firm committed to improving human experience at scale, Kate helps people overall understand the human impact of emerging technologies, and she speaks frequently with audiences of leaders of all kinds from companies such as Cisco, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, to nonprofits, cultural institutions, industries such as public radio, cities such as Amsterdam, and even the United Nations. Kate's expertise comes from more than 20 years leading innovations across technology, marketing, and operations in category-defining companies, and her insights have been published in all kinds of outlets, Wired, USA Today, CMO.com, and more. Kate has also appeared as an expert contributor on BBC, Marketplace, NPR, and other national and international media. Her fourth book is Tech Humanist, How You Can Make Technology Better for Business and Better for Humans. Kate, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk with you. <laughs> you and I connected a, a couple years ago through the Beancast, and ever since then, I've been following you and have just been so impressed and uh, interested in what you're doing. So, thanks. Is, yeah, yeah. I, I remember uh, our first appearance on the Beancast together, and <laughs> so that's also a fun podcast. But it's one of those uh, where they're sort of throwing topics at you and you have to be like really, really ready for all the news of the week to be uh, thrown at you. <laughs> right. That show prep always is like a weekend project for me. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. <laughs> Serious. But yeah, no, I'm, I, I was glad that we got a chance to, uh, to connect and that we're going to, we're digging into this conversation now. Yeah. So I'm, I'm in the same boat on that. I think that with your expertise on technology and the human-centric business approach to it, I really wanted to hear your thoughts on how we should approach designing when it comes to voice technology, things like Alexa skills, Google Actions, any kind of voice interaction to make them human-centric while also smart for business. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I think they are already human-centric in the sense that I, I think it's a really interesting um modality to interact with technology through voice, right? I think that's a, a really natural, uh, well, for those of us who who have that uh, capability, it's a really natural way to to interact. And, and so that already is a human-centric design uh, inherently. 
<clears throat> I think what, what it takes to be more human centric while also smart for business is to be thinking about those human needs and the environments that people are in, like the holistic context of how people are kind of going about their day and what they need uh, in the moment that they interact with with their smart speakers or with, um, you know, whatever kind of, of technology that they're using voice through. And so I think what business needs to do is really try to anticipate as much as possible where they intersect with what those human needs are and create the most uh, deeply contextual interaction that they possibly can that that's aware of uh, of that that need. So, for example, if you know if you're providing some sort of skill that has to do with the weather, um, understand that you know most people are probably kind of running around their room or their house while they're getting ready. And, um, you know, you want to make sure it's crisp and clear and you want to make sure that you're um, providing things like, you know, bring an umbrella or don't bring an umbrella. Like these are these are the simple kind of ideas of, of what it actually takes to think about what do people actually need and what what are they really trying to accomplish? And how are you going to make sure that you're uh, serving up, you're solving the business problem that you are setting out to solve while also accomplishing what the, the person on the other end is trying to accomplish. Yes, the person on the other end. I think we sometimes will see businesses approach new technology and want to get their foot in the door, get involved, but maybe aren't doing it from a really user-centric perspective. And maybe it's more of like a PR thing for that business to check a box. Do you Do you ever see that? Oh yeah, of course. And and I think that's, you know, it's a natural way to approach technology and that's that's one of the reasons why uh my work is oriented the way that it is because I think it is natural to think, well, this is a new technology, how are we going to use it? <laughs> and so I I think that's how a lot of technology development happens within business that executives and managers and leaders, you know, kind of look at at the um, the work that's happening within an organization and say like, well, what's our, you know, AI strategy or what's our <laughs> uh, voice strategy instead of stepping back and saying, you know, what are we trying to accomplish as a business? And who are the people outside of our business that are trying to interact with us? And how are they trying to interact with us? And what could we use data modeling and technology deployment for and in what ways to try to meet those those needs in an aligned way and a relevant way. So the more you can create alignment and relevance between the business and between the people outside of the business, the, the more human-centric that is bound to be. So that's, that's what I see is that it's, it's, of course, it's a really natural instinct to be curious about technology, but I think we still have to step back and say, look, let's try to make this where we're actually solving a business problem and we're solving a human problem at the same time. That's the way we're actually going to get to where these are aligned objectives. And I think that's how we're going to keep from scaling unexpected consequences, unintended consequences into our world. You know, a lot of the technology that is emerging is capable of so much scale. And I think we have to be very conscious about not letting it become absurd and out of control. <laughs> yes, unintended consequences. That reminds me of something you and I were discussing pre-show, which is the the Google Translatatron. So what this tool does is it translates spoken word into another language while retaining the voice of the original speaker. And this means that Google has your voice and could ultimately use it for a deep fake or impersonation or even fraud. So 
with with technologies like that, I mean, what are your thoughts on how we should use them responsibly or maybe approach it from a human centric stance? Yeah, this is all, it's a tricky area because I mean, on on one hand, it's really really cool, right? <laughs> I mean, it's a an amazing technology to think of. It's like the babblefish in uh, whatever the Douglas Adams book was. I, I always forget which of the Hitchhiker's Guide series has the babblefish in it. I think it's so long and thanks for all the fish. But um, you know, the whole idea of being able to actually use simultaneous translation that's machine translation and it doesn't lose any of the integrity of originating from the sound of your voice i mean when you just look at it like that it's a brilliant concept but then when you step one further one step farther down the road as you say that means that there's um there's sampling of your voice that's sufficient for machine learning and for this ai to be able to then synthesize what you've given with the sampling that you've given into creating basically any kind of speech, which is terrifying. <laughs> so on one hand, you have something very, very cool. And on the other hand, you have something really, really terrifying. And I think that's a lot of what we're facing with emerging technology these days. <laughs> so I think it comes down to, um, on one hand, there's, there's a, um, definitely a responsibility that the company that's creating the technology bears. Google absolutely has to govern itself uh, as much as possible and make sure that its motives are as aligned as possible with the, the motives of the people outside of the organization. And that's a tough thing to do. But once you gain that level of power, I think it's something that companies really must hold themselves accountable to. And then, of course, there's a, a government responsibility, too. I think we're, we're easily reaching the point where there needs to be some right-sized amount of regulation over these types of, of data models and, and making sure that the privacy really is in place and that if it's not, if, if uh, there are breaches or overreaches of this kind of privacy, if there's misuse, uh, that there are teeth you know, that, that government can crack down and there will be fines and fees and, and penalties assessed. And then I think for people, you know, us individually as people, we just need to approach this kind of thing um, in any emerging technology with a healthy degree of skepticism and, you know, some some reticence, you know, to use the technologies. I'll be quite honest, I don't even have smart speakers in my home because I don't think that the, we have quite the precedent yet for um, protecting what, what gets captured through those systems. So I'd, I just prefer not to even have them in my home. I know, we, of course, I have speakers in my computer and speakers in my phone. So, you know, the ship has sailed to some extent, but I don't feel like adding any more devices into my home ecosystem that, that are capturing even more ambient data. So I, I think this is just a, it's a, it's a complex issue right now. It, it's, it's exciting to see this kind of thing make this kind of progress. And we also have to be very cautious about how we're using mm -hmm. it. So the both and pattern to all of these emerging technologies, definitely exciting. I mean, we've seen in so many ways, government is, of course, always behind technology and the regulation comes too late and it's usually too little. And of course, you have been making the rounds talking about Facebook 10-year challenge. Uh, what was the deal with that? I mean, for anybody that kind of missed the news. Yeah, so... Um if you remember at the beginning of this year, uh, folks usually have forgotten about it by now, but when I remind them, they go, oh, yeah, I do remember that was a thing. Uh, back at the beginning of this year, there was a meme, a, a trend that went around where people were sharing 
10-year-old photos of themselves alongside current photos of themselves, and it was called the 10-year challenge. It was really big. It, everybody was participating in it, or a lot of people were participating in it, including celebrities. And I, uh, I made a, a tweet about it that was um, kind of snarky about how I, <laughs> I saw this as a potential way that someone could be mining all the data that's being shared and using it to train facial recognition algorithms on age progression. And uh, that tweet went viral. And I, I sort of, I got a little bit of pushback from people like, well, these pictures are already out there, blah, blah, blah. And so I sort of unpacked it in a little thought experiment uh, uh, in tweets to follow. And then those tweets went viral. And <laughs> Wired reached out to me and said, hey, do you want to write up a, an op-ed about this? I said, sure, of course. And then that went viral. So it was a wild time. Uh, and then I was on pretty much every mass media outlet known to human. <laughs> so BBC, NPR, Marketplace, etc. But you know, what I wanted to do is, is try to use the moment where everybody was obsessing about the 10-year challenge and could it be, you know, possibly used as a data, data mining thing. I wanted to use that moment to pivot the conversation just a little bit. And instead of specifically talking about whether the 10-year challenge itself was data mining, talk about the fact that we've seen examples of you know, where memes and games that ask you to provide structured information in a specific way are, in fact, examples of data mining. I mean, Cambridge Analytica is the most famous example that we all uh, sort of have a, a sense of dread about, right? Like that could happen again easily. So I think we we have uh, enough of a, a reason to be cautious about how we share our data and what we what we expect of how that data is used and, and protected. So we're at a point where it's it's absolutely necessary that governments uh, are are making the right kinds of of um, protections and regulations to ensure that companies that are collecting data, companies that are using data, companies that are transporting data, that they're all using the utmost amount of of uh, protections and respect for that data because that data is human data. It's our own information, and as you know, I'm sure all you listeners recognize that our data, the data that you and I share online, I mean, represents who we are, right? That's who that we're talking about things that we love, that we care about. We're connecting with people that we enjoy, that we admire. Um, you know, everything that we do online is a genuine representation of who we are as people. So that data really should be treated with the utmost respect and protection. And unfortunately, it isn't always. So we're definitely at a place where where government needs to be able to make uh, wiser decisions about regulation, and and hopefully we're we're going to see that over the next few years. Do you think that we need government to step in because the free market won't regulate itself or or do better? Yeah, I do. I, I think that this is a place that government belongs. It's it's um, I'd I'd love to see companies regulate themselves to the extent that. Uh, that it makes sense to do so. But no, the free market is is not really about regulation uh, in this particular way. Um, protections for people distributed throughout the market are not really what the, the free market does best. So I think what, what we need to see is uh, the free market making, uh, challenging one another, you know, so Google against Facebook, against Twitter, against et cetera, you know, all challenging each other to produce the best, uh, experiences and and promote the best um, data protection inherent to their systems. 
and that will attract users and that will bear out you know to the extent that it that it can but there has to be some teeth behind it and and government does have a, a, a right and a responsibility to step in here and say look if you don't you know protect data that has been uh, entrusted to you there are going to be consequences. And that's a that seems like an entirely appropriate place for, for government to be. I, I understand where you're coming from on that. Um, we've seen ask forgiveness, not permission, so many times with companies like Facebook, of course. Mm-hmm. Yet, uh, it's interesting to me that it doesn't seem to really kill the user numbers. I mean, you might see some people with a hashtag about quit Facebook, whatever it is, uh, every year something comes out, a major privacy breach. Why do people seem to be so forgiving? That's a really a good question. I think what's what's interesting about that is it's pretty nuanced. I think people do people do leave Facebook for sure. I've, I've certainly seen, uh, I, I'm still on Facebook and I think it's, it's part of my my job to continue to use the, the platforms that are the dominant platforms and understand how people are using them. But I've certainly seen people slip away. And what I have noticed is that people use it differently. And I notice myself too, using it differently. Facebook, for example, um, where I might, I might have been more trusting of things like, um, uh, permissions. Like if you post something and you only permission it to your close friends, uh, that, that you, you might share more revealing things. But for myself, I've gone, and I think some people have gone the direction where they've locked everything down under, uh, under lock and key, and they only share things that are protected and, and, and friend locked. I've gone the opposite way, and I'm treating it more like Twitter, where it's like everything that goes on Facebook is completely open uh, and, and available, and I don't entrust anyone to do anything with this. <laughs> like, I, I'm, I'm sharing only what I would share uh, shouting from a... Um, a stage, right? Like this is, this is kind of how I'm treating it as like, I don't trust Facebook not to invade my private messages and my protected posts. So everything can be public. And, you know, it's just an interesting nuance of the way that I think, you know, we, we do change over time in the way that we approach things like our, our, our sensibilities toward these platforms do evolve and so, yeah, we haven't necessarily seen the mass exodus from Facebook that I think some people were expecting a few years ago, um, especially after Cambridge Analytica. But I don't think that that means that there hasn't been a, a hit on Facebook's trust, trustability and reputation. And I don't think that that means that people haven't become different users of the platform than they were before. And I don't know what that means long term. You know, I think about that kind of thing a lot. It's it's very much a part of my work to consider what meaningful human experiences look like as we move into an increasingly data and tech driven future, uh, and and the the sort of subtle shifts in the way people think about the platforms that they participate in is certainly part of that. So um, I don't know that there have been very rigorous studies done thus far into um, people's attitudes toward the platforms, but my sense is that they do change and that those are relevant shifts that, that we need to keep our fingers on the pulse of. I, I agree with that. I mean, I've actually pretty much abandoned Facebook. I still use it for business, just like you said, for tracking things. But what do you think a, like a social network, for lack of a more advanced term, would look like that was taking into account privacy and meaningful connection and better regulation? What, what would be better than what we have now? 
I, I think we would have to, it would probably have to not be ad supported, which is, um, you know, one of the, one of the great dilemmas of how do you create a, a free platform that is not ad supported. So perhaps it couldn't be free. Perhaps it has to be something where uh, communities gather around something that is valuable enough to them to support it financially. Um, and we've certainly seen platforms that have experimented with this, like Ning, for example, and, and others like it. Uh, and I don't know that, that any of them have been what I would consider to be wildly successful in terms of their user experience. So we really haven't seen anything that, that approached Facebook's level of ease of use um, with that community organizing mindset. But I can tell you that for myself, for example, uh, when I look at Facebook, the, the main draw to the platform these days, aside from continuing to be aware of how other people are using it, is groups. There are groups that are there that represent true communities that I'm a part of that there are not quite yet places for us to migrate to. That You, know, you could take, take it to a Slack channel, but that just seems chaotic. You know, you could take it to a Ning uh, type of thing or, you know, something something else like that, like a, a forum type of platform. But it's not really the same thing. And, and what Facebook has achieved with groups and the, the critical mass of users that they have had over the last few years that allowed them to sort of populate those groups in really compelling ways, that's really not um, replaced yet. And so I'm, I'm interested to see how that takes shape, um, that someone's going to catch on and, and figure out some sort of model where you can, um, you can build platforms around communities and those communities can intersect in ways that you know, your profile can belong to different communities uh, and that can be a useful thing, useful kind of data to track, but not necessarily monetized through advertising uh, and, and, and I'm not exactly sure how that that business model will look, but I believe that that opportunity exists. Yes. And then it would be a lot more human centric because then the users wouldn't be the product and the advertisers wouldn't right. be the customers. Right. And, you know, people have been aware, I think, of that that paradigm for a while. You know, the idea that if you're not paying, you are the product. But I think we've we've so surpassed that now with the way that uh, these these data trails are everywhere. You know, this is it's so beyond just sort of shaping the advertising that you see. It shapes your environment. You know, it shapes your relationships with people. And so I think we're we're at a point now where the amount of data that that is available on any given person and the amount of data that any given major platform has available to to um, target and tailor experiences around uh, really does significantly augment the way someone goes about their day potentially and goes about their lives. So we're at a, a pretty significant tipping point in terms of making sure that what happens next is that the the right kinds of mentalities are in place, the right kind of mindsets and the right kinds of protections to make sure that that our next years ahead of us are are going to be um, better than what they potentially look like they could be if uh, if if this continues un, unchecked. 
That is so important. I've Everybody who's at all concerned about this or wants to make sure that they're taking the right steps as we do build technology, follow Kate O'Neill and <laughs> keep an eye on what she's doing. She's absolutely the expert in this. Kate, let people know where they can connect with you. Uh, sure. So so I spend an awful lot of my time on Twitter, speaking of social networks. <laughs> um, you can find me there at Kate O, K-A-T-E-O. Uh, or of course, my website is koinsights.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Kate. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Emily. This podcast has a new schedule. We will be releasing episodes biweekly going forward, so every other Monday. Subscribe free to listen anywhere at beetlemoment.com slash podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll also like my short daily flash briefing available on Alexa and all the major podcast apps. It's under three minutes long on marketing, voice, and business. Get it at emilybender.com slash briefing. To find out how to advertise on the show or to consult with me, visit beetlemoment.com. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Go!